welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that make them more real to us because we believe there's a great deal of power in the scriptures and we can draw even more on that power and apply it to our lives better when they become real. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and I'm excited today to do a short cast, although I don't know that this will be uh, super, super short. We have a lot to cover, um, but uh, we're going to do a short cast today on uh, parts of Samuel. Really, it's the story of Saul. We're going to do all the story of Saul, uh, and uh, it will be just me without a guest, uh, although I would love to have some guests, but we're just going to cover a lot of uh, information very quickly. There's a lot to cover in here. We're going to do uh, chapters that are in the Come Follow Me reading and some that are not. So to refresh us and where we are, you remember that uh, as we were ending the last bit, um, Samuel has been an amazing prophet and a judge. He's been judging Israel probably for about, uh, you know, several decades at least at this point. Israel has been very, very tribal. Uh, under the period of the judges, it's very seldom that they came together, all of the tribes. Often it was tribe against tribe and tribe jealous of tribe, and sometimes a couple tribes banding together. But then if someone came against someone else, then they would uh, be tribal against the other tribes and so on. Very, very tribal. Um, except for Samuel is judging over all of them, and they're getting a taste for what it, it's like to have uh, all of the tribes acting together. They've also had some military success under Samuel, and they're starting to be delivered from the Philistines. And I think it doesn't say this, so I'm reading into the text, but I suspect that they start to think that that deliverance is not because they are righteous and have repented and gotten rid of the idols, as we talked about, and are following this, this righteous prophetic leader, but because they've come together as a group of tribes and they feel like, hey, we're pretty powerful when we're all together. While I'm sure that's true, they, are, uh, they seem to be ascribing their success and their power to that rather than to God. And that's probably why they come and ask God for a king. And, and Lamar and I spoke about that quite a bit in the uh, podcast that we did. I'll also just note that uh, if you want to look at a lot of the geographic elements that we're going to talk about today, I'll mention several geographic elements, but if you want to go into more detail on that and see maps and pictures, uh, then go to my uh, YouTube channel and the playlist, the Scriptures are a YouTube channel, look for the Old Testament class video playlist, and you'll see there um, some of the videos that can help you with that. In any case, the story starts with Saul. Uh, we get in chapter 9, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, that there's a man whose name is Kish, and Kish uh, was a mighty man of power, and I think it seems to be talking about, I mean, he seems to have had a little bit of wealth, but, uh, but mostly he's, he's got physical prowess, and he is a Saul named Son, who is a young man and goodly, and by goodly, this seems to be physically. Uh, look at this next part in verse 2. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. So he's taller than everyone else, right? So as someone who is uh, not particularly tall, I've always found this to be a silly way to uh, judge uh, who is uh, a good leader. But I get this when uh, you're looking for a military leader. They want someone who is big. So remember that part of the reason they wanted a king was to lead them in battle. If that's your motivation, for a leader, then this is the kind of leader that you will get. Uh, but, but we'll look, I think Saul is actually a fantastic leader to begin with and a fantastic person, but the, the motivation of the people affects Saul. And that's what I think we're going to see. So in this story, some of, of uh, Saul's father's asses are lost. And so Saul and his servants, so that tells you a little bit of their wealth, they have asses and they have servants, uh, are sent out to, to seek them. They're from Benjamin, a place called Gibeah. Gibeah is just barely north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is technically in the territory of Benjamin, uh, it's, but they're not controlling that city at this point. Uh, it's right on the border between uh, Benjamin and Judah, but it's in Benjamin's territory. And just north, today the, it's called Tel El Ful, which literally means Hill of Beans, but it's on a hill there, kind of the, the northern hill and easternmost hill in the Jerusalem area. Today, it's considered greater Jerusalem. You can't really tell you've left Jerusalem, but it's not technically part of Jerusalem. And, and in ancient times, uh, there's a good ways between them, like no, no little settlements. Well, there was one like Nob and some other places, but it's, it's certainly a, a different place for them. Uh, they wouldn't have associated it with uh, Jerusalem other than just being near it. 
So they are looking for these asses pretty far because they get up into Mount Ephraim. So they're, they're getting a ways away and they're going around and looking for them. And finally, in verse five, Saul says, okay, we need to go home. Uh, we're not finding the, uh, the asses and we've been gone long enough. Now my father's going to start to be worried about us and not the asses. But his servant says this in verse six, behold, in this city, uh, or there is in this city, a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither peradventure. He can show us our way that we should go. So he's talking about Samuel. Samuel, while he spent the early part of his life in the temple in Shiloh, has now gotten, I'm, I'm sure he still spends time at that temple, although it seems like his sons are there and his sons are having problems. And we've talked about that. And uh, it's, it's also part of the reason that the children of Israel are looking for a king. Um, but they are uh, also nervous about uh, these sons. And I don't know what Samuel's doing with the sons, if he's reprimanded them or not, I assume. So I, I don't know where that is going. But um, in any case, Samuel has this little circuit uh, of, of areas that he goes to and he, and he uh, does services there. He, he does uh, sacrifices and so on, these high places. And these high places are uh, for Jehovah. And Samuel is doing appropriate worship there. We know that in time, over time, they'll start to become places where they do idolatry as well. And so they'll be abolished. But at this point, they seem to be perfectly acceptable places for worship and for sacrifice. And uh, Saul or Samuel goes on this little circuit to several of those places. And one of them, uh, Ramah, seems to be where he is from. So he's, he's uh, gone home in some ways and is performing service for people in his hometown. That's one of the places he goes to. In any case, He's at one of these places, and he's going to do a sacrifice. And the servant has said, hey, this guy can, uh, if he says he knows where they are, then it will come to pass. He really knows uh, because he's inspired by God. And Saul says, well, we really ought to bring him a gift. And I don't know, we, we've eaten everything we have. And the servant says, well, I have some, some silver. And so they go. Um, I find this very interesting in verse 9. So we'll start in chapter 9, and now we're at verse 9. Um, he says, and to Saul, uh, Oh, wait, no, sorry. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spoke, or thus he spake, come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. So this is just letting you know that in Samuel's day, they weren't calling, or I mean, in Saul's day, they weren't calling, and Samuel's, they weren't calling uh, men like Samuel prophets. They were calling them seers. Uh, it's someone who sees, literally, it's a seer. And uh, we've talked about that already. I'd recommend you go back to the, the podcast about uh, Enoch and what it means to be a seer. And uh, Samuel certainly fits that bill as a seer. So they go to ask him what they should do. And they find the maidens and they say, is the seer here? And they say, yep, hurry up uh, and you'll find him because he's about to do this sacrifice. And then we get this kind of little in interlude. And meanwhile, back at the ranch moment where Samuel um, it was told the day before by the Lord tomorrow about this time, I'm going to send you a man out of Benjamin who will be captain over my people of Israel, that he can save them out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. So very much like he says with, uh, the story with when they're in bondage to Egypt, he's saying, okay, I can tell they're in bondage and I'm going to deliver them. Uh, he has been delivering them by Samuel, but now he's going to deliver them by Saul is what he's saying. So when Samuel saw Saul, we're in verse 17, the Lord said unto him, behold, the man of whom I spake, who shall reign over my people. And so Samuel calls him to him uh, and he says, I'm the seer. Why don't you come with me to the high place? And they, they make a sacrifice and they eat part of the sacrifice, which is what they're supposed to do. He tells him your loss, your asses uh, have been found now. Don't worry about that. Um, and uh, this is interesting. We're in verse 20, and on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? So the desire of all Israel should have been on God. That's what the case should have been. But they have decided they want a king to deliver them rather than God to deliver them. And so that's what they're going to get. And this is the king. Um, and Saul is, starts out as such a humble person. We're going to see by the end he's not a humble person and that God will accuse him of, of pride. And we'll see pride really is his problem. Uh, by the end, but uh, we see at the beginning, he's very humble. He says, I'm a Benjaminite, the smallest tribe. Remember that the tribe of Benjamin was nearly destroyed not that long before this. We're going to come back to that in a moment. 
my family is the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin. That doesn't really seem to be the case, but you can see this is a way of speaking to say, what, why, why me? Um, and uh, they, there are about 30 people there, and they eat, and, and so on. And Saul is given a position of honor, but Samuel's not telling him what anyone what's going to happen. And they come down from the high place, and Samuel communed with Saul on the top of the house, and they arise early the next day. And uh, he says, up, oh, then I may send thee away. And Saul rose, and they went out, both of them, and he and Samuel abroad. And as they were going to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, bid thy servant pass on before us. And he passed on. So God or Samuel wants to talk to Saul alone. Now we get to chapter 10, where uh, this is going to surprise Saul, I think. As they're able to talk alone, we get chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him. And he said, is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Uh, so I don't think that Saul or Sam, yeah, Saul was expecting to be anointed at that point, but he is. He's anointed that day to be king. Uh, so he is now a Mashiach or an anointed one, meaning he's different than everyone else. That's what anointing is. Uh, they're used to anointing at this point. They've been anointing uh, priests for a long time, but this will be the first king to be anointed. And so he is anointed or set apart uh, to say that God has made him different than everyone else, and he is the king. Now, look at the information that God gives him. I mean, well, God, through Samuel, gives him as he leaves. When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zela. So Rachel died um, and was buried right on the border between Ephraim, I mean, between Benjamin and Judah, but she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So her tomb is actually just barely in Benjamin's territory. And he says, you're going to find someone there and they will say, your asses uh, are found and your father is sorrowing for you. And you'll go forward from thence to the plain of Tabor and you'll meet three men going uh, up to God of Bethel, one carrying three kids and carrying three loaves and another carrying a bottle of water. And they will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. So he's going to be fed. But all along the way, Samuel or Saul has to be saying, oh, this just like the seer really is a seer because this happened and then this happened. But uh, let's keep reading. And after that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, where there is a garrison of Philistines. And it should come to pass when thou art come thither, thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets. So there seems to be, we're, this is not the last time we're going to meet this group. There's a company of prophets, or sometimes they're called the sons of the prophets or the children of the prophets. Maybe we should call them the school of the prophets. It's a group of people who uh, are inspired by God. And uh, they travel around and worship God and probably help people worship God and, and uh, deliver prophecies. And I don't know what else. They're certainly accepted of God and inspired. And uh, it's an interesting thing. We're going to see, for example, he says here, you'll meet the company of prophets coming down from the high place. So they're part of the sacrifice and so on with psaltery and tabernacle and a pipe and a harp before them. And they shall prophesy. So this is not what we expect, but this is like a little traveling band slash choir slash orchestra. Um, and that's part of their prophesying. It's, it's uh, typical Near Eastern uh, that they have these, this music that helps them have the, these uh, moments of being open to inspiration and prophesying. That's not what we expect today, although we may think if we need inspiration, we put on uh, the tabernacle, the, uh, what is it called now, the, the choir at Temple Square. Um, hymns or of something like that. I certainly do that when I'm really seeking to get direction from the Lord, but this seems to be even a little bit more raucous than what we're used to. Uh, but that's the group he's going to encounter. And here's the key part, verse six, and the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man. Keep that phrase in mind. We're going to read it and discuss it in just a moment. And let it be when these signs are come to thee, that thou do occasion serve God, serve thee, uh, that thou do as occasion serve thee for God is with thee. So what he's saying is you, you'll know God is with you when all of this has happened and you've been changed. Um, and then uh, you should know for sure that everything I'm saying and everything we're doing is of God and God is going to be with you to help you become what you need to become. Cause he feels like there's no way he can be King. And this is in a way, Samuel telling him, don't worry. God will make you equal to the task. And after that, you'll go down before me to Gilgal, and I'll come down thee to do burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices and peace offerings seven days. Shut thou tarry, and I will come to thee. So Gilgal is just um, a seem, we don't know exactly where it is, but it seems like it's a little bit north and west of Jericho. 
that would mean that uh, from Gibeah, which is north and further west of Jericho, but Gibeah is up at the top of the hills, this way of the patriarchs, this ridge that uh, Jerusalem is on. It's at the very top of that, and you can look down into the Jordan Rift Valley from there. So most likely Gilgal can be seen from Gibeah, but it's like a 3,000-foot elevation change. So pretty steep stuff. Um, but that's where, and Gilgal, from the time of uh, Joshua till now, seems to be a, a meeting place, especially a military meeting place. So I love verse 9. We're in chapter 10, verse 9. And it was so that when he, meaning Saul, had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. I love this phrase. God gave him another heart. I think sometimes we underestimate what it means to have God change us and how much God can change us. He can change our natures. He can change our desires. He can change our feelings. He can change uh, our, our ability to see things, our ability to think, and he can give us another heart. Um, another way of talking about this is being born again. It's real. This is a real thing, and I think we need to understand how powerful it is to be born again. I remember uh, I was teaching this in one of my classes, and a little while later, I got a, a note from one of my students who said he was working at the MTC and uh, was over the call center where missionaries who were being trained would go and answer calls from people who had uh, been, say, maybe at a visitor center or a pageant or something, and they said they wanted to learn more about the church, and they gave their, their phone number, so these people would call. So they didn't answer calls. They made the calls to people. And this particular missionary called someone who uh, they got the person's mother. This, it was an adult woman, but they got her mother because she had just passed away. And uh, uh, the missionary was trying to talk to this mother, hoping that maybe she would be interested. And the mother said she was not interested because we didn't believe, uh, meaning our church didn't believe in being born again. And this new missionary said, well, you're right. We don't believe in being born again. And fortunately, my student who was uh, supervising was able to step in and say, well, well, actually, we do believe in being born again. But I think that's an interesting thing. I've met a lot of members of the church. I think it's less so now than it was 10 years ago when this happened. But uh, I know uh, a lot of members of the church, because we want to be different than other Christians, kind of shy away from the idea of being born again, which is sad because the Book of Mormon talks about it more than the Bible does. Uh, it's a real thing to have God change us. Now, does that mean everything has changed all at once and we're celestial material? No. Does it mean that we're changed and we never go back? No. But does it mean we can be changed and some aspects of that will stick and it will also, in a way, make us more willing to continue to try to change so that we can be changed again and again and again? Yes. Can we be given another heart? Absolutely. And we should be seeking for that and praying for that and hoping for that. And it happens and it's real. In any case, for Saul, uh, this, uh, all the signs happen. Uh, he knows that Samuel is a prophet and he meets this, this company of prophets. We're in verse uh, chapter 10, verse 10, and the spirit of the God of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass when all knew him before time saw that behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, what is this that is coming to the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets. And that will become a saying, as it says in the next verse, and we'll read this elsewhere. Um, another time when he starts to prophesy, this is when he's fighting against David. But anyway, uh, this, this is early on in his career here, where it becomes a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets, meaning that for a time, he was prophetic. His, the, the spirit came upon him, and he uh, could prophesy, and he changed, and he was a different person, and it was fantastic for him. In any case, so Saul's uncle says, hey, what, what happened? And he doesn't really tell him about, uh, he tells him about Samuel and the asses, but not about being anointed king. He didn't say, well, I went to see the seer, and while I was there, he anointed me to be king. Um, he's kind of hiding from this, and that becomes very apparent in the next part of the story, where you get uh, Samuel calling all the people into Mitzpah, and they gather together, and, um, and he talks to them about how God uh, brought them up out of Egypt, but they've rejected God. Um, and want a king. And so he's asked them to come by the thousands and Samuel caused all the tribes of Israel to come near and they've cast lots apparently and the tribe of Benjamin is taken. So you've got this huge group that is gathered together and they have all their uh, travel stuff somewhere, right? And then with the tribe of Benjamin, he has them march before. So this is the same thing they did with the Kish and the, uh, the accursed thing. There's some kind of a tradition here where you have the whole group 
uh, in front of you and by lot, you're trusting an inspiration through this lot and uh, one tribe is selected and then a family or, or a clan probably within that tribe and so on until you get down to a family and a, a small nuclear family and uh, then a person. And they do all of this and, and Saul is the one who's who is chosen and then it turns out Saul's not there. They're like, what, where's Saul? What happened to him? Where'd he go? And they inquire of the Lord and the Lord said, behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. Now I've researched this word and I think stuff is actually the very best definition. It's just stuff. He's among the things. He's among where everyone stored all their things as they came to this get together, it would seem. So they brought him together. And Samuel said to all the people, see ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among the people. Because it's mentioned in the verse before this, that he's taller than everyone from his shoulders upward, right? He's just taller than everybody. And the people shouted and said, God save the king. So they've gotten what they've wanted. They've got someone who looks like he can deliver them in battle. He can lead them in battle and help deliver them. And so Samuel uh, writes this down and uh, Saul goes back to Gibeah and a band of men whose hearts God had touched. So he's got a band of men who are, are inspired to be with him and go with him. And then we get the children of Belial uh, or Belial. Uh, this is a phrase you're going to come across a number of times. And this phrase means uh, people who are without uh, without God, without wisdom, or without anything. And, and so it's, it becomes a phrase to mean kind of people who follow Satan, or, but it really just means people who are without sense, uh, who are without wisdom. Uh, and But that's just becomes a phrase for people who are naughty people and, and can even be satanic people. Um, but this group says, how shall this man save this? And they despised him and brought him no presence, but he held his peace. So there is a group that is not accepting Saul as king, um, and they are, are not happy with this. And we're going to see how that turns out uh, in just a moment. All right. So now, in order to see what happens next, we are going to have to look at something else. Because there's a story, a really interesting story at the beginning of chapter 11, but it doesn't quite make sense. If you get chapter 11, uh, verse 1, then Nahash the Ammonite came up. Uh, so these are the children of Ammon. These are, they're actually related through the, the um, through Lot to the Israelites. Uh, they live in modern day Ammon. Uh, that's where they're at. So just uh, in the kind of the, it mirrors Jerusalem and the high hills on the other side of the Jordan River in modern day Jordan. Um, but the Ammonites come and they encamp against Jabesh Gilead. We're going to come back to that place in a minute. And all the men of Jabesh Gilead said unto Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. Now, that, that seems kind of weird. It is kind of weird, but it makes a little bit more sense if we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls version of this. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls version, there is another verse that is added either beginning of chapter 11, end of chapter 10. Um, and it reads this. I, I don't know for sure. This may be the people who live there in Qumran. Um, saying, okay, this isn't abrupt. Let's make up something that, uh, that answers what's going on here. Or it may be an accurate story. I, I kind of lean towards the latter. I think this might be an accurate story of what happened, but I really can't tell. In this story, we get this verse. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites severely. Remember that they had inherited their land over in, on the, the east side of the Jordan River. And he was boring out every right eye allowing no one to save Israel. We'll come back to that in a minute. There is no one left among the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye, Nahash, king or Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not bored out. 7,000 men had escaped from the power of the Ammonites, however, and had come to Jabesh Gilead. About a month later, and that's when we get verse 1, where it says the Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. So why boring out the right eye? Well, part of this must be just to admit defeat, but there's a, a, a very real tactical element to this. Um, you cannot fight as well if your right eye is borne out. First of all, you're not going to be a good archer as they were before this. Um, you have bad depth perception. You can't aim the right way. Second, um, you just you can't fight nearly as well, especially usually your right arm is your sword arm. And uh, now you've lost vision on that side and, and peripheral vision. Uh, so this means that these people will not be able to rebel against Nahash very well after this, as Nahash is trying to take over the land that the Israelites have taken over from Sihon and Og. 
as we read about in the book of, of uh, Numbers. So we get this idea that uh, he's, he's, all these people are in Jabesh Gilead and he's come against them. And the elders of Jabesh Gilead said, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers. Uh, if the, no one's going to save us, then we'll come to you, right? So this is nice of him to let them send messengers. And, uh, but if no one comes, then they'll just give up. Now, let's stop and think Jabesh Gilead. Where have we heard this story, this, this name before? Well, it's in that terrible story at the end of the book of Judges, where they destroy the tribe of Benjamin, and they say, wait a minute, we don't want the tribe to die out. There are a few men left. We need someone for them to marry. They can't marry our daughters because we made an oath they couldn't marry our daughters. So let's make it so that they can marry someone who didn't come to battle, so they didn't take the oath. Oh, Jabesh Gilead didn't come to battle. So we get uh, the men of Benjamin uh, kidnap a bunch of girls from Jabesh Gilead and a lot of Benjaminites. And Gibeah is specifically mentioned in this, but a lot of, in fact, Gibeah, where Saul is from, is the same place where that whole story started with the, uh, the gang rape of the concubine of a man. And um, so that's where the battle had taken place. So Saul is from Gibeah. He is almost certainly, I mean, it doesn't say it anywhere, but it's almost certainly descended from daughters from Jabesh Gilead. It's, it's likely his grandma was from Jabesh Gilead, that these are his relatives, and he knows these are his relatives. So now we get verse 4, then came the messengers of Gibeah, or to Gibeah of Saul, and told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voice and wept. Saul, I think it's likely that they would respond to something like this anyway, but Saul for sure is. That's his kin. That's his family. That's his aunts and uncles and everyone else. Uh, and so uh, he's got a relationship with them. It helps this story make more sense. There's more. We'll encounter Jabesh Gilead again later. And, and knowing this connection is, is important then as well. But Saul is going to go to war against these people. Now, you may remember in that really weird and terrible story at the end of Judges that they, the man whose concubine had been raped to death cut her into 12 pieces and sent it to the 12 tribes, saying, come and help me uh, seek justice from the people who killed my concubine. That seems to be some kind of tradition, some kind of way, I don't know usually with people, but, but some kind of way of responding. So in, in kind of a symmetrical mirror of this, Saul will take a yoke of oxen. We get this in chapter 11, verse 7. He takes a yoke of oxen and he hews it in pieces and sent it through all the coasts of Israel by hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. So this is what we call a simile uh, oath, where you have a symbolic action that if someone doesn't do something, then what you've done to this object, and sometimes they cut up animals, sometimes they melt uh, wax or the the um, fat from the animal or something like that. And they say, if you don't do this, this is what will happen to you. And that's what Saul does here. But you can see how it mirrors what had happened from Gibeah, that the concubine being sent out from Gibeah. Now this hewn oxen is being sent out from Gibeah and everyone comes. I think it's also worth noting, I, Samuel's not going to go to battle with Saul here. But Saul says, come after Saul and Samuel. He is still relying on the gravitas of Samuel. Samuel is someone who is respected, who God has helped, who has helped deliver Israel. They've had great success under Samuel militarily and otherwise. And so he's, he's drawing on that gravitas and that prestige uh, as he calls people to battle. And they gather in a place called Bezek, and uh, they, they say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, uh, by the time the sun is hot, we'll be there. And the men of Jabesh Gilead say uh, to Nahash, we'll come out and you can do what you want. And so on the morrow, when all of this is going to happen, Saul uh, put the people in three companies and they come into the midst of the host in the morning watch and they slay, slay the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And after that, it came to pass that they which were remained were scattered uh, so that not two of them were left together. So he's successful in his first battle. So note that he was uh, at the beginning of this, Saul is out. Uh, working in the field. He's, he's, they've never seen a king. They don't, I mean, they've seen other countries have kings, but they don't really know what a king does in Israel. Uh, so what they've had are these leaders who are judges who just kind of went about their life, but uh, when they needed to go to battle, they go to battle or do other kinds of judgment. They do that, but they kind of maintain their normal life. And that's what Saul seems to have been about. He just goes back to life as normal. There's not a palace. There's not 
a standing army has this group of men who've been inspired to be with him, but mostly it's just life as normal. Uh, and then he has this opportunity to lead in battle, and he does, and he's successful. And now all of Israel will really follow Saul. And, and we even get verse 12, then the people said unto Samuel, so Samuel must have been there in some fashion, but we don't know what or when or how. Who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. So you remember at the end of uh, chapter 10, there was a group who said, why should we have Saul as our king? Uh, and uh, now people are saying, whoa, he's a great king. Let's find those guys and kill him. But Saul says, there should not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. So not only is he not going to seek vengeance, but he's giving credit to God. And he's saying, if God is saving us, why should we be killing any of us? Then said Samuel to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. So this is the third time he's anointed. I, I assume he's anointed uh, when they gather together at Gilgal before. Um, no, it wasn't Gilgal. Where was it? Anyway, wherever it was, and he was among the stuff. I assume he was anointed there in front of everyone, but he's certainly anointed here, and he was certainly anointed in private with, with Samuel. Um, it's the second time he's been at a coronation, his own coronation, but this time everyone's serious about it. They sacrifice uh, peace offerings, and Saul and all of the men of Israel rejoice greatly. Uh, that's just wonderful stuff. And so we see Saul starting out as following God, giving credit to God, working with Samuel, being humble and actually starting to deliver Israel with God's help. It's a great beginning. Sadly, it doesn't stay that way, but it is a fantastic beginning. All right, let's uh, jump in with chapter 12. It's almost an interlude in the middle of the story, and we don't need to talk about it a lot, but this is the chapter where Samuel is basically, it's, it's his valedictory address like Joshua had or Moses had, and he's calling all of Israel together to say, you know, I taught you the way I was supposed to teach you. I haven't taken your things. I haven't abused my office. I've only served you. And the Lord is a witness that I've done this the way that I should have. Uh, and, and they answered and they said, yep, he's a witness. We know it all. Um, and then he kind of gets after them a little bit over this whole king thing. And he warns them about all of the things that will happen because of the king. And he, he calls down thunder and rain and uh, all the people greatly fear. Well, let me tell you a little bit why. So we got verse 17. Is it not the wheat harvest today? Uh, and they say it is. And he says, I will call unto the Lord and you shall send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for you a king. So here's the thing. The time of harvest is during the dry season. They're going to start to pray for rain soon after this, but it's a little while before rain is going to come. They don't get rain during this period of time. And so the fact that it's that Samuel says it's going to rain and it thunders and rains is clear that this is from God. But there's another issue. It's a terrible thing to have it rain when you're harvesting. So, for example, uh, I used to work on some alfalfa fields uh, and my wife would do the same thing. And if it rains when you're harvesting, then you have the, the likelihood that these, this stuff's going to get moldy and go bad before you can get it all taken care of and somehow get it dried out and stored away. It's the worst time for it to rain. They're not used to that concern because it never rains then, but suddenly they have to be used to it. So this is clearly a sign that not only is God with Samuel as he's telling them, you should not have asked for a king, but it's also going to cause them some problems. This is a, a cursing rather than a blessing. And so uh, this is just so that the people will know you really ought to pay attention to what God gets and what you're going to be getting. It, you deserve it. This is what you asked for. So Saul reigns for a year, and then he reigns uh, two years. He had 3,000 men, um, and uh, so he's gotten a standing army, and he is trying to deliver them from the Philistines. Uh, and uh, so he's, he's going to get this army. His son, Jonathan, and we're going to talk more about Jonathan in a minute. Jonathan is a fantastic person. Uh, but his son, Jonathan, is um, going to uh, be a, fan, a great military leader. And together, they're fighting against the Philistines, and they are having success against the Philistines for the first time. Um, especially, they're going to have a battle at this place called Michmash that we'll get to in just a moment. Um, but they're gathered together to battle. So he, Saul is in Gilgal, 
and he's gathered all the people together and he's waiting. So uh, Samuel has told him that he will come and do a sacrifice there. And Saul and all of the people are waiting and they're waiting and waiting and waiting for Samuel to come and do the sacrifice. And if we look at verse eight, Samuel came not to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him, from Saul, right? So he's tarried seven days. So you can see that people are getting nervous. There's something must be wrong. We thought this wasn't going to be that hard. Uh, God is with us and so on. But the fact that we're just waiting and not going to battle must mean that Saul is nervous about something. And so they're getting nervous and they're leaving. He's losing his army. Uh, and we're going to see uh, that he will say, uh, when he talks about why he does what he does, he says, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days thou appointest, uh, within the days appointed. So the problem here is that Saul has stopped realizing that he is winning battles because of God. And he's thinking that it's because of typical worldly power, because of the size of the army he has and the way that they go to battle. Now, in my opinion, this is partially because this is what he was chosen for. Israel's focus was on a leader who could lead them into battle, not God leading them into battle. And so since that's Israel's focus, it seems to have become Saul's focus. Saul is no longer focusing on God. He's focusing on the same thing the people are focusing on. They have shaped their leader, it almost seems to me. Uh, we have this humble person who relied on God that now is relying on the power of the world. And as a result, what does he do? Well, he makes the sacrifice before Samuel comes. He doesn't wait for Samuel. I don't think he's authorized to make a sacrifice, but uh, he certainly doesn't wait as he was commanded to. And the whole reason is because he's trusting in the, the power of people instead of in the power of God. Um, so Samuel, as a result, Samuel says to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom for, upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So this doesn't mean that Saul will stop being king. It means that his kingdom, meaning a dynasty, his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons being king after him, that's not going to happen. Instead, God is going to choose someone else. And this is a foreshadowing of David. Uh, and it's because Saul has chosen to trust in the same thing that Israel trusted in, trusting in the, what the world is teaching. Uh, now, I've talked about this a bunch of times, and, and Lamar and I have talked about it, and I'm going to talk about it a bunch more. But stop and think, in what ways is the world affecting you so that you trust more on what the world says than in what God says? And in those ways, you are becoming like Saul. Saul, who started out so well and then finishes so poorly. That's what happens when you listen to the world instead of God. It doesn't matter how well you've started out, how faithful you've been. If you start listening to the world instead of God, you will go down the worldly path, and there is no success at the end of that path. It's only sadness and failure at the end of that path. That's the only place that path leads, even though along the way you feel so sure and so good about what you're doing and, and what's going on. But in the end, it only leads to failure and unhappiness. And that's what we see happening with uh, Saul uh, from here on out. Now, we're going to do chapter 14, which is not in Come, Follow Me, but I think it's really important to understand some of the things that happen hereafter. And it's a fantastic story. We'll just touch on it, on it lightly. We've got Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, and uh, he is stationed with this garrison. He's got a, a fairly large garrison at uh, Michmash. Um, this is, there's this uh, narrow pass to get through to this, this Philistine fort. And uh, Jonathan knows a way for just a couple of them to sneak through that pass. So this is an interesting little sidelight during World War I, when the British are trying to take over that area from the Ottomans. There is a British general who's familiar with the Bible, and there is an Ottoman uh, fort in that same area. And he says, you know, I think this is the area of that story of Jonathan. So there must be a little narrow pass because of it talks about it in the Bible. And they send some scouts out and they do find the pass and they send in a, a little garrison of crack troops through there. And it's one of the things that helps change the course of uh, World War One in that part of the world. So that's an interesting thing. Good for him to know his Bible history, right? In any case, you've got Jonathan 
um, who is uh, fighting and he's uh, with his armor bearer and he's not telling anyone else what he's doing. He's in charge in that area, so he doesn't really need to. Saul's somewhere else. Saul is at, at Gibeah back at home right now under a pomegranate tree. Um, and uh, so there's the, the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a sharp rock on one side and on the other side and so on. And Jonathan, we're in now chapter 14, verse 6. And this just tells you a little bit of the fantastic person Jonathan would be. Jonathan said to the young man that bear his armor, come and let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, to the non-covenant holders. This is an emphasis. They don't have a covenant. We do. Now listen to this next part. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Do you see what he's saying? It's the exact opposite of his father. The contrast here is so strong. His father says, I'm going to sacrifice and start the battle because I can't lose any more men. Whereas on the other side of this uh, kind of field of operations, you've got Jonathan who says, why don't the two of us go against this, this garrison? If it's God who's going to deliver anyway, he doesn't need any more than two of us. It could be 20,000 or two. It's the same. It's going to be God that fights it. And his armor bearer, bless his wonderful heart, whoever he is, um, he says, do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. So his armor bearer is going to do whatever Jonathan does. And Jonathan sets up this little sign. Uh, when we call to them, if they say, stay there, then we won't go up. If they say, come, then we'll go up and God will deliver us uh, and, and uh, deliver the Philistines into our hands. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 12, the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you something. So Jonathan and his armor bearer come up, uh, said unto his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet. So it's a pretty steep place they're going through. And his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men. So that's how they get into the garrison. Within, as it were, an, a half acre of land. All right. And that's fantastic. And so then there's trembling and, and the, among the hosts in the field and the garrison and the spoilers trembled and the earthquake. There was a great trembling. And the watchman of Saul and Gibeah said, hey, the, the multitudes made in, melting away. And so they all go to battle. Uh, now, this is interesting. Uh, we didn't go through some of the things we've been uh, could have read and that hopefully you have read or are reading in the chapters before by this. But the Philistines are being very successful in their oppression of the Israelites. For one thing, they won't let them have uh, the ability to, to smelt iron. Uh, they don't let them have smiths, and so they can't make weapons. Jonathan and Saul are the only ones with real swords. Everyone else is fighting with their farm implements. Uh, and so that shows you the power that the Philistines have over the Israelites. So the Israelites have enemies in lots of places, and uh, we've just had them defeat um, the Ammonites. Now they're fighting the Philistines. In a minute, they're going to fight the Amalekites. But what you're going to see is that besides the Ammonites, the Philistines have been gaining land. Uh, they're now far up in the, they started out in the coastal plain. And you remember the battle was uh, just kind of in what we'd call the low foothills in Samson's day. But now they're up in the high hills. Uh, so they've been gaining ground on the Israelites. But from this battle forth, the Israelites will gain ground on the Philistines until finally they, they uh, beat the, uh, the Philistines under David. Um, but this is a turning point for them, a serious turning point. From here on out, it will go Israel's way, whereas all before this, well, saw, uh, Samuel was starting to have success, right? So they were having success under Samuel, and uh, then there's this kind of momentary pause, and now they're starting to have success again, and it's because of Jonathan and Jonathan's incredible faith. We have this strange story where the Jonathan, he eats some honey, not knowing that his father uh, is, asked, is commanded all the warriors to fast. And um, so then when some things don't go well, Saul says, oh, it must be because someone didn't, uh, wasn't fasting. And so we'll kill that person. And they do these lots and he figures out it's Jonathan. And he says, I'm going to have to kill you. And, and everyone uh, intercedes on Jonathan's behalf and says, no, he's so righteous. You can't let that happen. Don't, don't, don't let this happen. That's part of what happens here. 
Jonathan is saved, but we see the faith and the contrast between Jonathan and Saul. It's not the last time we're going to see a contrast between Jonathan and Saul. So Samuel says unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, hearken unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Samuel is still clearly, uh, he's, he's the kingmaker, literally, uh, and he's the counselor, and, and prophets from here on out are supposed to be counselors to kings so that kings will do the Lord's will. Um, and so he says he wants him to go against Amalek. So let's, let's ask ourselves, what do we know about Amalek? Um, Amalek is a descendant of Esau. The Edomites are descendants of Esau from one son, but Amalek is a descendant from another son. So the Amalekites are related to the Israelites, but they're also the first people who uh, attacked Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. This is the group where then when they were fighting them, Moses had to hold up his hands and Benjamin and Hur held his hands up. And as long as they were up, they were winning. And when they were down, they weren't winning. So that's different. The, the Israelites are not allowed to fight uh, against the Moabites and Edomites because they didn't allow them to go through their land, but they didn't attack them. But the Amalekites attacked them and the, uh, Ammon or, yeah, the Ammonites attacked them. And so God has them uh, fight back. And so he's going to have uh, Saul go against the Amalekites. Um, and he says, you have to, to utterly, verse three, go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, ass, uh, camel, everything, right? They're, it's it's a, a harem. We've talked about it before, all to be dedicated to God uh, by destroying them, not by sacrifice or anything else, but by complete destruction and war. So Saul gathers the people together, and we've got 200,000 footmen this, and 10,000 men of Judah. This is uh, a lot bigger army than what he had raised before. So you can see that this success is really starting to work, and they're, they're starting to have uh, more people join the battles. Uh, so Saul smites the Amalekites, and he takes Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Um, and Saul's, uh, uh, sorry, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good. And they didn't utterly destroy them. So they're not being obedient, but everything that was vile and refuse, uh, they destroyed utterly. So they kept the stuff that was really nice and they destroyed the stuff they didn't want. So I wonder how often in our lives, that's how we obey. We obey on the stuff that doesn't really matter to us and the stuff, our favorite sins, the things that are really you know, difficult for us to not do or to give up doing or the things that are really difficult for us to give to God, that's a different story for us. I wonder how often we're like that. In any case, that's, that's what happens. And uh, then we get the word of the Lord came into, coming to Samuel saying, it repenteth me that I've set up Saul to be king, for he's turned back from following me. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And he rose early, and he came to meet Samuel or Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and now he's passed on to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, uh, and he says, uh, Saul says to him, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They, you know, those other people, the, the Israelites, they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, oh, to sacrifice unto the Lord. This is the first time we hear about that. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel says to Saul, stay, and I would tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, stay on. And he said, listen to this. When thou wast little in thine own sight. Remember how humble Saul was at the beginning. He was little in his old sight. Then wast thou made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the, uh, the Lord anointed the king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey. All right, And we're always being sent on journeys by God. The question is, do we do what God asks us to on this journey? And he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, I obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've gone the way the Lord sent me, and I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, they took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and so on and so on, right? Uh, and now we get this classic verse, verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey 
is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. This is worth our remembering. What is happening is that Saul is rationalizing. He's rationalizing and figuring out ways to make it okay for him and the people to do what they want to do. Even though they know it's not what God wants, they're finding a way to feel okay about it. And that's not going to work. And that's what Samuel is telling him. No, you have to obey. Don't find a way to think this is a sacrifice, to think this is righteous in this way or that way. It's not righteous if it's not obedience. You have to obey. And, and this is a powerful lesson. But really, much of this comes down to pride. Look at what we get in verse 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He was more concerned with what people would think of him than he was with God. Again, when it comes to our hearkening to the world and wanting to be like the rest of the world, this is us. This is a description of us. Uh, and then he says, now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. Um, now, we're going to get to one last little part. Samuel says, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine. So this idea, again, that, that he won't remain as king. Um, now, look at verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. Do you see what his concern is? He, he does want to worship God, but it seems like much, if not most, of the reason is so that he'll still look good before the people. So remember, the people wanted a leader who was strong, and they weren't so, and they could lead them in battle, and they weren't so sure about Saul. But then when God was with Saul, they became sure of him. But then Saul started to worry more about the people and what they thought than about God. And that continues to be his Achilles heel. It will be with David. It will be in so many ways and places. It's pride. It is this issue of pride that he thinks that it's him and the people that are winning the battles, not God, that he wants to look good in front of the people. He'll give in to what the people say and what the people want. Yeah, he's just so worried about what they think about him. He is ruled by what do others think about him to the point that he's willing to do what he knows is wrong in order to look good to other people. This is probably the greatest snare before us today. We will compromise our values. We will call the prophets wrong. We will find ways to rationalize what we want uh, and so on and so on and so on, all because we don't like the, that pointing figure that is mocking us from the great and spacious building. It is so hard for us, but this is what leads to the downfall of Saul and will lead to what we see in the next podcast, the anointing of David, who will be different for almost his entire reign, but not quite. But in any case, it's a sad story about Saul who starts out so well, but is so concerned. Uh, and I think it's Israel rubbing off on him, as I said, but he's so concerned about the world and what Israel thinks of him. Uh, a sad, sad story in many ways, and one that I hope we can learn from and not believe.